are listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we start our new teaching series on the book of Revelation. Pullman, how are you doing? All right. The time has come, no pun intended, to study the book of Revelation. Um, Let's see here. Uh, Probably two different groups of people here in the room. One group of people that was like my mom... Uh, anything connected to that, she was like, I don't want to, nope, I don't want to, I don't want to, don't want to know about it. The joke was tossed out last, uh, uh, last service. I'm a pan-millennial. I believe it will all pan out in the end. But <laughs> <laughs> bum It's like, I don't want to talk about it. I, I, we, we don't understand it. I don't want to understand it. We can't. It's just, uh, no, 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 no. Okay. So for that group of people, I won't have you raise your hands, uh, It's important to study this book because what we believe about where this is all headed and what we believe about how this all ends greatly affects how I live today. Maybe more than anything else, barring one exception, which we'll talk about by the time we're done with today. But it's incredibly important. You can't just say, ah, it doesn't matter to me. It does matter because somewhere you've picked up something that informs you on where this is going. Just a couple examples. If you think that this is all just going to get burned up in the end, like this is all just, this is all just going to end in some cosmic Armageddon, people right now are like, it is, isn't it? (laughs) Give us some, give us a few months here, don't worry. Um, That, that, imagine if you believe that God is putting the world back together, restoring it redeeming it. Which one you believe, which one informs your belief of where this is all headed greatly affects how I live today. If you believe this is all going to burn up in the end, so why would, I, why would I take care of the earth? Like, why would I care about anything? I, I don't want to use terms that will get political and whatever. Why would I care about any of that, right? I mean, it's all going to burn up in the end. This is just here for us to just take and have dominion over right? Because it's all going to get burned up in the end. Or if this is all being put back together, I might, I might be being invited to be a part of that redemption process. Does that make sense? Here's, here's one last one. Uh, what I call spiritual escapism. If you believe that ultimately this is about some glad morning when this life is o'er, all fly away. If this is about going somewhere else, If this is about, I can't wait for my life to be over, I can't wait to die, because then I'll be somewhere better. If if this is about the action being somewhere else, that greatly changes how you live today, correct? I'm just now kind of waiting for that great glorious morning to come. Or, if I believe that the action's here, the action is not there, In fact, one day there is going to come here where the action is and then everything will be made right. Well, then that demands my physical participation in that work. Does that make sense? What I believe about where this is all headed greatly shapes how I live and my value system while I'm here. And one of my my favorite quotes is, the Bible is about life before death. It's not about life after death. It's about life before death. 
So this is an important study. Now there's another group of you in the room. It's like revelation, and you just have been like salivating, like the drool has been underneath your chair every Sunday since we've told you that this is coming, right? You're just like, I cannot wait. And you hold your opinions so tightly that there's gonna be, like we won't have a parking or a seating issue because half of them will be empty by the time October gets here, right? So there's that camp. And so just to clear up a few things, Alex already cleared up the first one. How many revelations is it? Just one of them. There's your cheat sheet right there. It's just revelation, not revelations. How many revelations did John get from God? One. It's singular. All right? Put that in your notes. That's important. Drives me crazy. Okay. Second of all, the labels. The labels are not helpful because the labels are not correct. It's not about getting the right label. What are you talking about, Marty? Is it pre-trib or post-trib? No. <laughs> it's neither. What? Uh, that group number two right now is starting to break out in cold sweats and already starting to write me their nasty emails on their smartphone. Okay? Is it pre-millennial, post-millennial, or amillennial? No. We're not going there. That's not... Is it... Are you a preterist? Are you a historicist, an idealist, or a futurist? <laughs> and those of you who aren't revelation nerds are like, what did you just do? The preterist, well the preterist believes that everything in revelation has already happened. The historicist believes that revelation has been unfolding throughout history. So at every different stage of history, another piece of revelation has unfolded, which you might be shocked to find this out. Guess where everybody puts the last stage? in their day and have for the last 2,000 years. Shocker. Um, and guess how many years they've been wrong? <laughs> yeah, all 2,000 years. Okay. Um, then there's like the futurist, which believes that everything in Revelation is going to happen in the future. And then there's the idealist, which is just like, hey man, just calm down. <laughs> like, let's just talk about the big picture and stuff and not figure out. Okay. So, so there's the four camps. So which one are you and Aaron? And luckily Aaron and I agree on all of this, so that's good, because that would be really awkward if we didn't. Uh, which one are you guys? We're neither. We're neither. We are going to approach the, revel <laughs> the revelation of John the same way we would approach any other book of the Bible. We are going to approach this book with a solid biblical hermeneutic asking about Bunch of big words here. Hermeneutic is how you interpret the scriptures. We're going to ask the question of authorial intent. Say authorial intent. That means we believe the Bible is inspired, correct? God breathed. We believe the, the Bible is an authoritative, amen? Okay? So the converse, there wasn't many amens there. I'm a little concerned about that, okay? I get it, whatever. Uh, so there is a conversation that is God-breathed and where all the authority comes from. It is the conversation that happened between the author, in this case John, and his audience. When I understand, that means I have to ask two questions. What did John mean when he wrote that? Second question, what did John's audience hear when they heard that? When I can understand that conversation, I have now understood the inspired authoritative conversation, and I have to take that, and I have to go, 
And what does that mean for me in Pullman, Washington in the year 2017? But the Bible is not written to Pullman, Washington in the year 2017. That's how we read it, especially the book of Revelation. We're like, well, did you read the news? Like this is like Turkey and Iran and all the things going on in the Middle East and then Russia and isn't this the book of Revelation coming true? No. Because John didn't know about any of that stuff. It wasn't like John was pinning the book of Revelation going, I have no idea what any of this means. I can't wait to find out. And it wasn't like the audience got the letter and went, well, I can't wait for the Americans 2,000 years from now to figure this all out. John knew what he was writing. His audience knew what they were reading. And there was a conversation there. That's the inspired one. That's the one that we then get to apply to our world. Do you understand why the labels are not helpful? Because the labels are all Western. And the Bible's not Western, it's Eastern. Revelation is not Greek. Revelation is Jewish. Revelation is Jewish apocalyptic literature. Speaking of which, let's just dive into the book of Revelation, shall we? Revelation 1, verse 1. The Revelation, how many of them? Excellent. Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon, interesting word study, when you look at that in the Greek, it actually means soon, (laughs) take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud... These words are not meant to be, I mean, do this. Study them in your study alone. That's cool. Don't stop. But these words are meant to be heard. It's a heard word altogether. Blessed is the one who reads these words aloud of this, of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches of Asia, John to the seven churches of Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Now for some of us, we read that and we go, see, this is why, dreams, visions, seven spirits, I'm out. Like, count me out, I'll come back in October when you guys are done, thank you very much, right? So, no, 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 the first thing we need to talk about is revelation is not something new. Okay? There are some new things, some new aspects, some unique qualities of Revelation that we'll talk about. But Revelation is nothing new. It is a piece of literature, a genre of literature that any Jewish reader would have been familiar with. It's called apocalyptic literature. Say apocalyptic literature. Very good. Okay? Apocalyptic literature. Isn't it about the apocalypse? Yes, but we've, uh, we've undone the word apocalypse. Apocalypse just means to uncover. 
to reveal. It doesn't mean like cataclysmic end of the world, okay, apocalypto in the movie. Like it's not, it's not, that's not what the word means. The word just means to uncover, okay? So apocalyptic literature, they've seen it before. And I don't want to beat us over the head, but this is one place where if we knew our Hebrew scriptures, you call it the Old Testament, if we knew our Old Testament, we would know this. But we don't, because who wants to read the book of Ezekiel? Ew. Right? But if we read the book of Ezekiel, if we were familiar with the book of Zechariah, if we would go to Revelation, we'd be like, hey, I've heard all this before. Because it's not new. It's a genre. Every, when they read those opening six verses, every reader heard that and went, oh, I see what you're doing here, John. This is a piece of apocalyptic literature. In the first few verses, yes. Now, apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament, we're talking about Ezekiel, we're talking about Daniel. Daniel's kind of this weird thing we're not going to use a whole lot because we have to argue about dates and it's really convoluted and make everybody mad. So we'll put Daniel aside. Zechariah, pieces of Isaiah, pieces of Jeremiah. Lots of prophets will utilize apocalyptic literature within their larger prophecy. This is a genre that they were familiar with. Has anybody ever tried to study the book of Ezekiel? Like the craziest thing in the world. Like you peel up that book and you're like, it's the same thing as Revelation. You open it up and all of a sudden there's a vision of the presence of God and creatures surrounding the throne. They're all covered in eyes and wings. And you're like, and then he looks at the presence of God. It's like a wheel within a wheel. And then Journey starts playing in the background. Wheel in the sky, keep on turning. Obscure pop culture reference. <laughs> Dated pop culture reference. And, and then there's like a rainbow and a crystal, and you're just like, whoa, I am, I am out. I have no idea. Here's the thing. Apocalyptic literature is written to a group of people, God's people who are in exile. God's people who are, in this, in the Old Testament case, in Babylon. Their women and children have been abused. Their brothers and uncles and sons have been killed, tortured, burned to death, crucified. Their house has been burned to the ground. The temple has been dismantled. They have been put on the equivalent of buses and carted off to the equivalent of concentration camps where they serve Babylon as slaves. And they're asking this set of questions. Why are we here? What did we do to deserve this? I get it. Maybe we broke some rules. We were rebellious and disobedient. But how could God justify bringing me here to this? Or has God, maybe one of the most important questions, has God forsaken and abandoned us? Because it sure feels like he has. And apocalyptic literature, if you've ever, how many people have gone through suffering in their life? Yeah, okay, thank you. Much better in first service. They apparently have it really good. You shouldn't meet some of them for friends. <laughs> yeah, so, so lots of us have gone through suffering. How many of you have had to endure well-meaning, well-intentioned church people say just stupid things? Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, like, well, just let go and let God. Yeah, let go and all, yeah. Let go. Um, 
God means it for the good, that something good will come out of this. You don't, you don't take like Paul's approach when you're writing to a church in exile. You don't say, Paul, to the church in Babylon, don't worry, it will all be okay. Signed, Paul. That doesn't work. And so apocalyptic literature, literature is, is meant to communicate through pictures and poetry and symbols. It's meant to tell them that it's going to be okay. That we've been here before. We know how this story ends. And suffering doesn't get the last word, so you have to persevere. It acknowledges the junk and the garbage and the darkness and the death. And it also says, and in spite of all of that, we walk on. That's what apocalyptic literature does. It's not about the future. Ezekiel was not about the future. It would have been a really rotten letter to write to a church in exile about a future 4,000 years from now. Hey, people in exile, don't worry. I want to write you a bunch of irrelevant stuff about what's going to happen with Russia. Who? It's about their day. So apocalyptic literature is this. Put this in your notes if you're a note taker. Apocalyptic literature utilizes symbols and images to convey hope to their present day. Apocalyptic literature utilizes symbols and images to convey hope to their present day. Not our day. Their day. They're the ones that need the hope. We get to learn from that hope. We get to learn from that conversation. But Zechariah wasn't written to you. It wasn't written to me. It was written to the people of God in Babylon. So when Ezekiel talks about his vision... And he says, well, I saw a bunch of heavenly beings and they were all covered with eyes. What is the, one of the driving questions that you have when you're in Babylon? Does God even, when you're in suffering, one of the big questions you have, does God see me? I, I saw the presence of God and all around him were creatures covered in eyes. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. What is the message? God sees you. And in their world, they had a, a geographically centralized worldview. God dwelt where physically? He dwelt in Jerusalem. But now Jerusalem's been destroyed and you've been carted a thousand miles away. What's your question? Where is God? God got left in Jerusalem and it wasn't a pretty picture. But then Ezekiel says, but I saw the presence of God and it was like a wheel within a wheel. What's the message? God's mobile. He can go anywhere. And so then a few chapters later in Ezekiel 10, Ezekiel says, I saw the presence of God Pick up out of the temple and head east. Which direction is Babylon? East. What's the message? He went with his people. God went with you. He sees you and he's still with you even in Babylon. Persevere. God has not abandoned you. God has not. Do you understand? And at the end of the book of Ezekiel, the people of God come back and who comes back with them? Say God. God. God, and then he, he settles back in the temple. And then we're like, oh my goodness, that's a prophecy about how there's going to be another temple built in Jerusalem. I wonder when Israel, the state of Israel, put the temple mount back together. And what? No! It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with their temple, their God, their situation. 
I have anything to do with that. That has everything to do with that. I'm glad this is visual, because other than that, that wouldn't make any sense. Not that, that. Um, okay, now, let's use Zechariah. Just one more example. I want to show you that revelation is not something new. Revelation is a constant and consistent callback to what's already been. I'm just going to use one example. I could use ten. By the time we're done, we will. But today, just one more. Zechariah. Okay, let's throw up some references to Zechariah. Zechariah's prophecy starts with a man walking among the myrtle trees. Revelation starts with a man walking among the lampstands. Okay? So when you open up the book of Revelation, if you would have had Zechariah what? Say, it started with an M. Memorized. Yeah. If you would have Zechariah memorized... When you open up Revelation and you start reading, I saw a man walking among the lampstands, you'd be like, oh, <laughs> I see what you're doing there. That's what Zechariah did when he started his thing. But we don't. We're just like, a man, lampstands, oh my goodness. Whoa, somebody call the biblical scholar. We've got to figure this out. Okay. It. Next. Zechariah speaks of horns sounded to scatter Israel. Revelation speaks of trumpets sounded to usher in destruction and rescue. But when, when John utilizes the image of trumpets, every Jewish reader is going, oh yeah, yeah, of course. What is John trying to communicate, communicate to the people who read Revelation? We've been here before. We've been here before. It's all going to be okay. Because guess what? We left Babylon eventually. Empire doesn't last the oppression ends. Death doesn't get the last word. Greed and power and abuse, it's not built to last in God's created order. So, so we've been here before, people of God, and we know how this ends. Let, let's keep going. There's more. <laughs> Zechariah speaks of a measuring line used to measure Jerusalem. The same exact image is employed in Revelation at the end of the vision. Next. Zechariah talks about clean garments of the high priests. Revelation talks about a multitude in clean white robes. Is that because the multitude has been called to be a kingdom of? Is that his illusion? In fact, isn't that what he said in the opening verses of the book? To, to us who is called to be a kingdom, priests in this world, in this heavenly order? Like this is John's, this is John's point. He's utilizing images from Zechariah to make his New point. Let's keep going. Zechariah tells us about scrolls. So does John in Revelation. Let's go to the next one. Zechariah speaks of a woman in a basket. Revelation speaks of a woman on a beast. Are, are you tracking with me? You understand what John is doing? John's using old material to talk to a new situation. And we're like, oh, it's all brand new and I have no idea what this means. We can, we can start, we can get halfway there by realizing John's using old material and calling on the context of Zechariah to make a point to the church in Rome, in the Roman Empire. Not the church in Rome, but the church in the Roman Empire. And then my last one, this is my favorite one. Where, where do the four horses of the apocalypse show up? Revelation. Zechariah. Reemployed in Revelation. Did you know that? 
The four horses pulling chariots were already talked about six centuries, seven centuries before John in the book of Zechariah. It's not a new image. It was new when Zechariah used it. Why don't we spend our time scratching our head with that? Because we don't study Zechariah. That's the problem. Zechariah contains the vision of four horses drawing chariots. So does Revelation. So, so my point, I, I really want to make this point over and over again before we close. When you get to Revelation and there's this feeling of panic and shock that washes over you. Take a deep breath and realize we've been here before. Maybe we haven't been here before, but they had. This is nothing new. When they, when they start reading it, they settle in. They don't like, I don't know what he is. They, they, they're like, oh, okay, John, speak to me. Tell me what I need to hear about my situation. I understand your point. So, okay, one, one last statement and then we'll, we'll unpack this. This is a wordy one. <laughs> Imagine that, shocker. Um, Marty being wordy. What? Revelation is not written primarily about the future. Let's let that one sink in. Revelation is not written primarily about the future. It has a few, it has a few, it has a few future references, but they're really vague in general, just like Zechariah or Ezekiel. Like when Ezekiel talked about them coming back home and God coming with them, was it full of a bunch of details about how that was going to work? Say no. No, because they didn't, they, Zechariah's like, I don't know, I, I don't know how you'll come back home. I'm not a future teller. I'm just telling you, you will come back home and God will come with you when you do. I'm confident of that, Zechariah says. So John talks about the end. He talks about the church coming down like a bride and there being a gigantic wedding feast that apparently doesn't end forever. But, but what, how does that happen, John? I, I don't know. It's not my point. I'm just telling you that it will. So press on. Press on. His point is not to tell us how things are going to happen. His point is to tell us to press on what's happening now. And actually, it wasn't to tell us that at all. It was to tell them that. And now we have to figure out what that means for us. Speaking of which, let's keep going. Revelation is not primarily about the future. Revelation is not primarily about the end of the world. Because in Revelation, there really isn't an end to the world. The end is really just a gigantic beginning, correct? Like you get to the end, and it's a gigantic wedding banquet that apparently doesn't end, and now all of a sudden everybody can be healed, and the tree of life is finally there. The same tree of life we started in the book of Genesis when we started this series in February. Remember that tree? Well, it's back at the end, and that's his greater, and, and so that means it's just a new beginning. It's not an end at all. The ending is just a new beginning. So Revelation's not primarily about the end of the world. Revelation is written, this is a hard sentence, Revelation is written to a first century church being persecuted by the Roman Empire, to a people who are running for their lives, standing up to the narrative of empire, watching the execution, the execution of their brothers and sisters, and wondering if it's all worth it. Brothers and sisters, this is actually why we struggle with the book of Revelation. Because you and I have no idea what this is like. We are the Roman end of the sword, not the other way around.
This is why we have a hard time understanding the book. Now, I'm not talking about individual suffering because some of you as as individuals have suffered unbelievable abuse, have suffered unbelievable, like why in the world did you get dealt the, the, the deck of cards that you got dealt? Like some of you have suffered as individuals. I'm talking about corporate, cor- corporate punishment, like corporal persecution, corporate persecution, and corporal. I, we don't even, and I am so sick and tired of people connecting like your coffee cup and whether or not we can say Merry Christmas to the word persecution. That dishonors the memory of the people that Revelation was actually written to. Grow up. Uh, reading this fantastic book, um, uh, Prepping for Revelation, there's a history series. It's called Christians, the First 2,000 Years. Uh, the first uh, volume is called The Veil is Torn. The second volume is more relevant to Revelation, and it's called A Pinch of Incense. The whole book is just full of stories of, of real martyrs. Um, not like the cheesy, uh, like Jesus freak martyrs, like, like the, the early Christian church martyrs. Uh, there's a story about Blandina. This woman who had a newborn child. And through the birth process and the community that was around her, she becomes a Christian. Her father and mother come to her and beg her to recant that conversion, recant her profession of faith. Uh, She's yet to be baptized in this first early church. And so she actually refuses and goes on to be baptized. And so uh, Rome, essentially the authorities come and they take her and they put her in prison. And the mother and brother come as she sits in the dungeon. The mother and father, excuse me, come and they beg her to, for the sake of her newborn child, to uh, recant. She says, "I, I, I can't. And so they take the baby away. And the baby almost dies because... It was nursing and they have no way to, so they bring the baby back. She at that point was going mad, uh, going, losing it because of grief over losing her child. She nurses the child back to health the whole time praying that the child can be weaned by the time it's taken away from her. Uh, They come and they take the child away from her. Uh, They drag her into the arena along with five others where there are five, six gladiators there for their execution. Blandina's executioner was a rookie gladiator and they were all going to throw the sword right underneath the collarbone to kill them in that Roman execution fashion. He missed the collarbone and went right down the front of her chest. After shrieking in pain, she grabbed the gladiator's hand, put the sword in its place. How could the early church do that? Because they believed in resurrection. We, we need to learn here at Real Life, but the Church Universal in general, we need to learn here how to talk about resurrection. The church has gotten so used to talking about the death of Jesus that we don't really know what the resurrection is about. Resurrection is kind of like the ta-da that proves that the death was worth it. Resurrection is the whole point for the early church. How can you guide the sword to your own execution for a rookie gladiator because you believe that his sword has nothing on the kingdom of God? 
Because that you believe that the grace and the compassion and the forgiveness and the goodness and the restoration that you gave your life to in your baptism is so much better than anything that Rome could try to make you afraid of. Do you remember a few years ago when ISIL released that video of the 40 Christians on the beach of Libya? I watched that. And for the first time in my life, for the first time in my life, I got a glimpse, a glimpse of what the people who received revelation had to experience every single day. And that's a, that's a terrorist group. This is state-sanctioned. So don't talk to me about your loss of privilege and call it persecution. And that's really mean. I don't want to be hard on you, but I hope the book of Revelation challenges us. To its original audience, it was meant to convey hope. I hope that to many of us in the room, it challenges our socks off. Because we're convinced that they're the, we're the first kingdom in the world to put the kingdom of God and Caesar together. And Jesus' teaching will never change. Give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God's what's God's. You don't put the two together. You can't serve both God and mammon. It hasn't changed. I hope Revelation fundamentally shakes us to our core as we read about a people of God willing to go to the sword and a John who says, don't give up, because it's working. It was the fastest growing religion in the second century. Put those two together. State-sanctioned executions, fastest growing religion. Why? Because it was so compelling. It was so compelling to the world who knew that that, that was a sham. It was a sham and everybody knew it. Don't we know it? Do we not know that? It's a sham. It's a farce. Okay, I'm getting all wound up. Oh, revelation. I'm one of the, I'm camp number two. I get a little pumped up about Revelation. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. We got like four more months of this, so just buckle up. Um, I want to invite our servers, if they will go back and start serving out our emblems. Uh, we have an open table here, so if you're visiting with us this morning um, and you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, your family, and you join us. Just hold on to the bread and the juice, and we'll take it all together here in just a moment. Man, I'm getting all worked up. Okay, uh, four implications. Revelation can be complicated, but Revelation is also very simple. Here's what I mean by that. Revelation's horribly complicated. You all know that part. It's got symbols and images and colors and numbers and everything means something else. And we're, uh, hopefully, if we're good teachers at all, we're eventually going to learn by like a third of the way into this series that everything is coming from the Old Testament. Everything is what? in the text. So we're gonna, we're gonna eventually learn this over time that everything is in the text. It's, it's gonna be very complicated, but once we learn the right questions to ask, can I steal one of those? Can I steal, can I steal one of those? 
Thank you. Thank you. So it can be very complicated, but once we learn the right conversation to have, once we learn how to ask the right set of questions over and over and over again, revelation becomes quite simple. It doesn't make it uncomplicated. It just, it just means the two coexist. It means the two coexist. Uh, next implication. Revelation is not to be avoided. We shouldn't, we shouldn't avoid revelation. It's actually really critical and crucial. Do you, don't answer this. Do you, think about it. Do you really believe that this story ends with the church descending out of heaven like a bride and a gigantic party with a city with gates that are never closed because they never need to be because everything in the world is made right. Do you believe that's really where this is headed? Or do you think something else? Has it been informed more by spiritual fiction about a rapture and a what do you really believe? Because what you believe, so we can't avoid it, but nor is it a call to arms. So there are many people who read the book of Revelation and it's like they can finally let their inner warrior loose. Like, yeah, the first time Jesus came, he was all loving and gracious and stuff, but the second time he comes and he bathes himself in the blood of his enemies. Like, I can't wait for that day when Jesus finally vanquishes all of my foes. That is not what's going on. When Jesus' robe, robe is drenched in blood at the end of the vision, it's his own. It's not the blood of his enemies. Not at the end of the vision. Like one of the things that John's gonna consistently come back to, five times John's gonna talk about his vision of heaven, and his vision of heaven always starts the, his first thing, the first thing he has to point out, every time he sees heaven, first thing out of his mouth, every people, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Every time he sees it. Why? Because that's what stunned him when he saw heaven. Here's a fun exercise. When you picture heaven, is it full of a bunch of people with the same skin color as you? Oops. That is a sign, by the way, of privilege. That. <sighs> Never mind. Next implication. Understanding what revelation means for us today depends on understanding what it's meant for the first readers. If we want to understand what revelation means for us today, we don't read the newspaper, we don't watch cable television. If we want to understand what Revelation means for us today, we try to understand what Revelation meant to its first audience. And then we think critically about cable television. We get that flipped around. Okay, next implication. In Revelation, however, this is a quote from John Collins. In Revelation, however, as in all early Christian writing, the crucial act of deliverance has already taken place in the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is something that's unique in Revelation that's not in Zechariah, it's not in Ezekiel, it's not in Daniel. Do you remember two, two Easter's ago we studied the book of Ezekiel? Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? What was his answer? Lord, only you know, which is a Hebrew way of saying, I hope so. I hope resurrection is possible. Guys, we live on the other side of resurrection. We are children of the resurrection. It happened. Dry bones live. 
That's why Blandina can guide the sword to her own execution, because the tomb is empty. That's why. It's changed apocalyptic literature forever, because it's no longer, I hope so, it's, it is so, and I now get to live in accordance with that truth. So persevere and overcome. Ah, we hold in our hands the great apocalyptic sign. It's been taken care of. Whatever you came through the doors with that threatens to steal your joy, steal your hope, steal your whatever, steal, 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 this bread, this juice reminds us of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which said once and for all that the life, the order of life gets the last word. I was just hanging with some family members, an uncle who just recently in the last month got diagnosed with multiple melanoma. And uh, they talked about fighting it. Why? Why? Why fight it? They talked, they talked with joy. They talked with all kinds of hope about horrible things. Why? Because resurrection wins. Because it wins. Because cancer may appear to get the last word. Rome may be knocking down your doors physically, taking your children, stealing your life. But I know how this ends, Blandina would tell us, as she sits in our great cloud of witnesses. The tomb is empty, and I've met Jesus himself. So hang in there. That night, Jesus took a piece of bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat, this is my body. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And later in the meal, he took a cup. He passed amongst his disciples. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. This is Jewish way of saying, everything we've ever looked for finds its culmination in what we're doing tonight. And we live on this side of history. And Jesus says, remember, as you live on this side of history, don't just look forward. Remember to look back so that it helps you live forward. He says, whenever you take this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. Father God, I pray that you would help us uh, live out the call of revelation well. One of my greatest uh, prayers, God, is that the way that we would live our lives would honor the hundreds upon thousands upon thousands of martyrs that you have in the book of Revelation dressed in white robes under the throne singing the song of Moses. The Lord, the Lord is highly exalted. A horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. God, I pray, God, that you help us to be confronted. Help us to confront our idolatry in a way that we could stand at the end of our life on the other side of whatever lies on the other side and we could look Blandina in the eyes, we could look at Jesus in the eyes, we could look at Elijah in the eyes and we could say, I didn't give up and I ran with all of my might. God be with us, guide us, direct us. I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, 
Visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com. 